You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 14. In today's episode, I'll be interviewing Jill Mott, who is a professional photographer in Colorado. Jill worked for many years as a professional photojournalist. She has also worked most recently as a full-time professor with the Art Institute's um, online program, which is the program I graduated from with my bachelor's degree. And she has also been working on some personal projects in South Africa. So stay tuned for all of this on episode 14 of the Liam Photography Podcast. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 14. So today on the phone uh, for our interview, as I mentioned a moment ago, we're going to be talking with Jill Mott, who was previously a professional photojournalist and has also worked as a full-time professor of photography with the Art Institute of Pittsburgh's online division. I want to thank my listeners again for rating, reviewing, and subscribing in iTunes and any other software that you might be using to listen to this podcast. And we're going to get started right now. Hey, Jill, how are you doing? Good. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on this episode of the Liam Photography Podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, I'm so excited and I'm so glad to be part of all your multimedia that you have out there. Yeah, I, I'm trying to expand my brand as much as possible in, in the podcasting. I really enjoy doing it, and it's a little bit easier to do. I've been been trying to work on the YouTube channels more, but uh, the video just is so time-consuming between, you know, go over, like for the Forgotten Pieces of Georgia, between going out and shooting the the counties, the buildings, getting all the historical data and then shooting the footage as well as the stills and then editing it all and recording the audio for it. And it's just a very, very time consuming. And as I mentioned, when I talked to you before I started this episode, this is actually going to be the first episode of the podcast where I'm recording video at the same time to put up on the YouTube channel. Exciting. Really cool. <laughs> I love how you always challenge yourself. Yeah, I'm always trying to trying to challenge myself with new things, try out new things and, and new ways to promote the brand and stuff like that. So I'm going to I'm going to start off with the first question I had for you, which is, was photojournalism something that you had always wanted to get into um, when you were younger? In other words, did you know that it's what you wanted to do as a young lady in junior or senior high school? Or was that something that came about as a career later on? a great question and I've had time to reflect on that on a couple different levels and you know when I was young I had no idea what photojournalism was and to be honest I wanted to be a detective I was a product of the 70s and Charlie's Angels was amazing and I thought I wanted to be a detective a, a PI and as I got older, I realized, eh, maybe that wasn't going to be the case. 
And as I discovered more career opportunities, I thought about photojournalism. I was really into art and had an opportunity to study art in Italy. My family is pretty artistic. I've got sculptors and interior designers and um, quilters and all kinds of artistic family members who were pushing me in that direction. Not necessarily pushing me because I loved it. Um, but I thought that was the way to go. And while I was in Italy, I heard, overheard someone talking about, yeah, photojournalism, you can travel and take pictures. And I thought, whoa, that, that sounds like the career for me. And then that's when I realized that there was a lot of opportunity in the world of photojournalism. Although I still didn't know quite what that meant, it sounded really exciting. And I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are thinking National Geo and that kind of thing. And that was what came to me uh, as well. But the idea of kind of investigating and hearing people's stories uh, was the first kind of connection that I had uh, in terms of the real world and what I wanted to do. I knew that was something that was really a passion for me. Cool. And so I, it, it kind of was uh, like a best of both worlds thing for you. You got to travel and do something that you could be passionate about at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that, I could definitely see where that would be a win-win scenario. It's one of the things that I was always intrigued about with photojournalism, but uh, I mean, I know photojournalism is still there, um, but I think uh, I think the profession's a lot more slim pickings than it was, you know, a couple of decades ago with the advent of the Internet and social media. And, you know, a lot of newspapers have gone out of business or, or they've stopped print and they just strictly do their their stories online. You know, when you hear, you know, you hear about these stories the last couple of years where like the Chicago Sun-Times, they fired all of their photographers and they're just perfectly happy now with having the reporters go out to cover a story and just snap pictures or video with their iPhone and they call that good enough now. Yeah, it is very, very sad to me on a m many, many levels. And I think something that I hope you're and everyone will take notice of because, uh, you know, the First Amendment freedom of speech is a very important issue and what our country was founded on and founded on for good reason to keep in check what is happening around us. And there's a lot of reasons why media is um, changed to what it is become. And I'm sure that's another episode I would love to discuss with you. But the opportunities as a photojournalist are getting um, slimmer in terms of a daily job, in terms of full-time position. Uh, and what people are now calling themselves are documentary photographers or editorial photographers and really finding and seeking the projects that they're passionate about to document. Um, it's really sad that there aren't those opportunities to have uh, work at a daily newspaper. I cut my teeth at 
many newspapers, uh, you know, as an intern where you have the ability to photograph sports and portraits and fashion and events. And that really does give you so many skills to enter a variety of niches in in photography. It, it's um, the greatest job on earth, really. I loved it. I, I had an amazing job time working at newspapers yeah sounds like it would have definitely been a lot of a lot of fun and a lot of adventure and excitement and and like you said um you know it's bringing uh current events to the forefront you know um you know because for many many years the only way that you know news was covered was photojournalists you know uh whether it was a war correspondent or um, photographers, photojournalists that worked for Reuters or AP or whatever the case may be that traveled, you know, around the world, you know, one week they might be covering a, a conflict in a third world country. And, you know, the next week they or a couple of weeks later, they might be covering, you know, an election in a newly formed democracy that was previously a communist regime um, and things like that. So there was definitely a lot of uh, a lot of exciting things that were going on in those days. And, and I kind of wish that I had gotten into, it's not that I wasn't into photography. I, I've done it as a hobby and a profession off and on for 25, 30 years, even before I went and got my degrees. Um, but I was doing other things. I spent 10 years in the army and then I got into working in IT. So I never really got into, I mean, I, I kind of wish I had gotten into the photojournalistic thing. Um, but I just didn't really think about that all that much when I was younger. Well, and I think that you don't really, at that time, even 10 years ago, you didn't think that it was going to go away. And uh, it, it has changed so much over the years. And I, I often talk about the, those changes. I mean, I could be at a newspaper and be down photographing homeless people in the morning and then the CEO of the bank in the evening. And it was a great opportunity for me to intermingle with so many different kinds of people. And the changes that have happened in terms of print to digital, you know, as a photographer, I would actually have to cut my picture out of the newspaper and put it in an envelope and send it to an editor to um, get their feedback or to move up to the next level of newspaper. And now we have it so easy to just, you know, put it on your social media and um, share it around the world, which is an advantage at times and um, a great thing, but uh, that slower process of being able to analyze uh, media, your images, is, is something that is a little bit lost. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the, big thing, the big thing that I look at with this digital age is more of a negative is, you know, like you were saying, at one time, you know, photojournalists were the life's blood of news and information. And now with the digital age and all the social media and all that, it's, you know, our current day and age, it's so hard for a professional photographer that's now doing editorial or documentary style in place of 
photojournalism because there just isn't that much of that anymore. It's hard for them to get their work picked up by news organizations or outlets because the world's just inundated with all the, the mediocre stuff on social media. And because of the death of print, for the most part, the, the vast majority of print dying off and that affecting budgets and advertising revenue and all these other factors, they get lumped into it as, the, you know, part of the whole equation. A lot of times these outlets now, they don't want to pay for the content. They want to get free content. So they would just assume, and it's sad, but they would just assume get Sally's iPhone photograph for a story rather than a professional photographer's photograph because they don't want to have to pay for it. You know, Sally's perfectly fine with just getting her name mentioned. Yeah, you touch on a lot of different things there with the idea of immediacy. You know, we we have this this need for immediacy over quality. And um, so you see that happening. And, and that actually relates to the whole idea of factual facts and factual um, information and the training that photojournalists in the past have gone through in terms of ethics and, you know, where this information coming from. And, you know, that is, is something that is, is really important for audiences to recognize that you, you have to spend the time to really look and analyze media, whether it's print, you know, or images, whatever it is. Is this real? What is being said here? And, um, you know, do you trust that? And sadly, because of the demise of print journalism and the, the very slim, um, you know, newspapers were cut so much that their staffing is very limited. And they don't have the staff to go out and cover in an investigative way. And that is part of the problem. And uh, yes, you know, if if folks can get it for you know, cheap or free or the quality is less than excellent, people are using it because of the demand. And I think we as individuals and as consumers of that media need to think about, you know, our demand and our reason for, for wanting that. Why, why do we feel that we're going to trust that type of media over something else? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and that's, uh, you know, so many of these, like I said earlier, newspapers and news organizations have died off or they've gone out of print completely and they're just doing strictly, uh, you know, digital on their Web page. And, you know, um, from our interaction when I was one of your students at AI, that I, um, as part of my Forgotten Pieces of Georgia project, I was contacted by the lady who's the editor for the Sparta Ishmaelite newspaper in Sparta, Georgia, in Hancock County. And we're doing a collaboration for her newspaper. And even though it was this, it's a small town newspaper, and I believe it was always just a weekly paper. It wasn't a daily paper. Um, 
originally when, you know, she first started working there, she started out as an intern and worked her way up. But until just a few years ago, she had a staff of like 25 and now it's her all by herself. So she has to go out and, and cover the sporting events and the news stories herself. And she has to take any pictures herself and, and she has to do everything herself. She has to put together the entire newspaper and then send it off to the, the, the parent company that owns her newspaper now has, you know, tons of other papers and other markets. And she literally has to send her finished weekly paper off to one of their other locations that actually runs the print and then ships the finished newspapers back to her. Yeah, that's really amazing. And she deserves a lot of credit for that because that's a huge, huge, huge job. And that's where people start to, oh, they don't do anything for us or she didn't quote me right or that kind of thing. They, real people who are the audience have no idea what it takes and they get really bent out of shape with the media and have a perspective about that. But this gal is probably trying to do her best to at least get some news out there. And I would ask your listeners to really be conscious about the local news sources that they have around them, try to support them as much as they can and look at the bigger sources and analyze what's happening because there's there's not enough coverage and she's doing the best they can. There's a million high schools that have, you know, the state winner of whatever sport is going on and the local politicians that are, you know, running for this and that office. And that's a lot to cover. And, you know, it's, it's very, very important to have some kind of local news source. A lot of people may call them the local rag or it's this or that, but at least you have something. And I think it's very important for people to recognize that that is there because a lot of countries, a lot of places in the world don't even have that opportunity. And I commend this gal to uh, what she's doing and, you know, trying to do her best. And, you know, it's hard for folks like you who, you know, string for them or freelance for them. And, of course, our, our work is valued and we should be getting paid for that. Um, but there is an aspect of that that is a part of, I feel, a, a community responsibility to help tell the stories that are going on around you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I was interested in doing this collaboration with her newspaper. You know, I'm not getting paid for it. All I'm getting is credit in the paper itself. My photos are being shared and and my links to my social media and, and my YouTube channels and stuff like that. But I'm, I'm fine with that because uh, I just the first time I visited Sparta, I was so saddened just to see how devastated this town had become. I mean, basically in the late 1800s to the early 1900s, it was the capital of the cotton industry in the world. And then after the bull weevil epidemic, um, which I think was after World War, I can't remember, it was World War One or World War Two. I think it was World War One when it was really bad. It decimated a lot of the crops. And, and you know, eventually the, the 
Cotton Warehouse was bought by a furniture company that made wooden furniture in the town for decades. But then they moved their operation down to Florida. And after that, you know, Sparta pretty much became a ghost town. And I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania myself. So I kind of have that kind of relationship with her paper, you know, because I'm from a small town myself. We had a weekly newspaper as well, the Troy Gazette. Um, and, you know, so I, I definitely don't mind sharing my content with their paper to try to help out this little town that's trying to make a comeback. And it's it's been a, a long struggle for them. And, and hopefully, you know, they'll they'll come back, maybe not to their full glory days when they were the cotton capital of the world. But hopefully uh, between the stuff that I'm helping them with and the stuff that uh, Robert and Suzanne Curry are doing with the um, the Elm Street Gardens, where they're actually using plots of land throughout the, the city limits for uh, a garden. And they actually hire some of the local kids and, and other people to help them with the gardens. And then they take the produce to the farmer's markets and stuff like that. Um, you know, hopefully it's going to help revitalize Sparta, at least to a certain extent. Well, and I think that's excellent to you and the other people that are in the community because how are people going to know if you know you're not putting it out there you're not sharing people are in your community and every community that we live in that are doing great things and without journalism without newspapers how are you going to find out unless you know someone in that you know area and um that is is one of the things that is really uh, a, a danger with our nation here is if we're not able to talk about and document and preserve history of what's happening looking like you have done with your uh, forgotten pieces of georgia if you cannot look back at what's happened and reflect on that and think about how we can prevent these things from happening or how we can improve, you know, for the future. And we don't have that visual aspect. It's, it's, it's very, very dangerous. And, um, again, that's probably a topic for an, another, another podcast, which I hope to be a part of. But it, those are really interesting topics that I hope people will, will really think about because media, the First Amendment and freedom of the press and that idea of uh, the press being designed to take notice of these things, history, preservation, the future, our government are very, very important. And uh, it's important that we all be a part of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So moving on to my second question I had for you, as a photojournalist, did you travel to other countries to cover news and events? And, and did you cover any anything that ended up being a major world event? As a photojournalist, I primarily worked in the domestic market, national market, uh, Colorado, Florida, California. So when I covered events or news, it was usually domestically in the area or uh, nearby states. It wasn't until I 
really became an independent photographer, independent freelance documented photographer that I started exploring more of those things going on in the rest of the world. And I always had a passion for Africa. And that's when I really started exploring what was going on in the rest of the world. Okay, so you didn't you didn't uh, spend any time as a war correspondent or anything like that. <laughs> well, it's just good. No, That's probably a good always, thing. It was always my dream, and it was always very glamorous to to think about that. I had dreams of going to Nicaragua as a war correspondent and 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 a young person to to cover those types of things. But it really is a special kind of person that can do that. Um, you definitely want to be single, agile, fit, you know, speak a couple different languages, those kinds of things. Um, and it's just, uh, I, I needed to cut my teeth in, in the States, which there's plenty to do and, and uh, cover. I When I worked in California, I was, working in Northern California and uh, in Palo Alto area. And at that time, uh, East Palo Alto was a, a, a thriving place for drug activity and gang activity. And that kind of domestic uh, warfare was very intriguing to me. And I had the opportunity to go on a lot of uh, Ride along and um, hang out with the AT. The uh, and you're gonna have to edit this now. Uh, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and and those kinds of things, and do uh, undercover stuff, which was very exciting. Those kinds of things were really, really fascinating to me. I, again, going back to that idea of being a detective, I loved that kind of thing. Ride alongs were one of my favorite things to do. Oh, yeah. And then you got, you know, you got a certain element of danger and the adrenaline rush, but not quite. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on the situation, you know, with uh, with drug gangs and stuff like that. That could get pretty dangerous, but maybe not quite as bad as having to worry about, you know, your your vehicle driving over an IED or something like that in a, in a war-torn country. But yeah, I could definitely see where you would definitely get the, the rush, the adrenaline rush and the, the element of danger, you know, covering things like that, especially doing ride-alongs and stuff. And I know from my time as a, a state constable in Pennsylvania, I worked extensively for, for quite a while in the Harrisburg area um, with the drug task force. And uh, that was definitely uh that can definitely get uh, harrowing at times, for sure, dealing with the, yeah, that, that element all the time. I think that is it. It doesn't necessarily have to be abroad but or in a war-torn situation, but as a photojournalist working for a newspaper, you have a lot of opportunity to be in sketchy, come, sketchy situations that uh, pump up your adrenaline. Even, you know, being in tricky situations perhaps with homeless and you don't know what quite what's going to happen and you're always kind of looking around riding along with the cops or rolling up on a fire and it's interesting 
that we get to this point in the conversation because I always find myself still really aware of my surroundings and what's going to happen and who's coming into the situation and how, uh, you know, how are people acting and that does give a rest and it's really interesting as a creative person to figure out how do you document that as a photographer? How do you document that? How do you tell that story? Um, because you're you're being aware and looking and analyzing, and then how do you translate that as a photographer? It's it's a, a great opportunity to combine all of those things together. Oh, absolutely, yeah, for sure. And uh, I mean, there's. Uh certain elements to it that would definitely be exciting and dangerous. And, and even when I'm out traveling today, you know, whether I'm, I'm out doing my real estate photography during the day or driving back and forth when I work for Turner at night, I try to always have one of my cameras in the car in case I come across anything, you know, interesting that I can document, whether it's a structure fire or, or a bad motor vehicle accident on one of the interstates or whatever the case may be. And I actually had, a situation a couple of years ago where I was out, you know, shooting for my project and I was up in Ringgold, Georgia, and we stumbled upon a car show and I love car shows. Um, so I stopped to photograph the car show, you know, all these antique and vintage cars and muscle cars and race cars and all kinds of cool stuff. And so I was there for a few hours photographing the car show, left, got 20 minutes up the road and came across a massive house fire and ended up documenting that as well. So. Yeah, that's what I I love about being a photojournalist or being a photographer. That's aware. You just never know what's going to happen. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, sometimes I, I, I don't remember to always take my camera with me and I'm always nervous about just leaving one in the car all the time because I don't want somebody, you know, smashing my car window out to steal my camera. So sometimes, unfortunately, I, I'm, I'm stuck with only being able to document with my iPhone, which bums me out. But, you know, it's what are you going to do? Well, the best camera is the one you have with you. Exactly. And Chase Jarvis made a book out of that. <laughs> He's, he, spent a exactly. year, he spent a year doing all of his professional shoots with nothing but an iPhone 4 and then wrote a book about it and even came out with his own camera app in the App Store. Yes, so. absolutely. I highly recommend everyone take a look at his work. And it's a great advice. You know, sometimes you don't want to look around your camera equipment and um, there's no shame in using an iPhone or whatever smartphone you have right now as long as you capture that that image and, the, and you know it really brings us back to the idea of you know quality versus quantity you know get the shot with whatever you have and we've seen millions of videos and photos making some serious money and making a difference in the world uh, just off a single iPhone photo or 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 smartphone photo. So, in in terms of that idea of documentation and preserving history, and and it's important to use what you have. Exactly, exactly. And one of the things I haven't gotten one yet, but I've been kicking around the idea. I don't know if you're aware of this. And off the top of my head, I can't remember the name of the company, but there's actually 
a company and they sell them on Amazon that actually makes like a camera body for your smartphone to go into. Your phone actually, it's kind of like a dock that you put your smartphone into and I think it works via Bluetooth and it basically gives you all the same controls and feel of a DSLR using your smartphone as the actual camera. But you've got an ISO dial and shutter speed dial and all that stuff, aperture control and all of that. And I've been thinking about picking one up. I know they uh, they recently released their Mark II version of this device. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I know I have them bookmarked on my Amazon shopping list. And you can get Sounds one. Sounds like a podcast. Yeah, you can get one for like 70 bucks. They were, they were, at one time, they were a couple hundred dollars, but now you can get one, you can catch them on sale for like $79. And I thought about getting one just to play with and maybe as a way to have a, a camera with me all the time in the car without risking one of my more expensive cameras, but still have all of the functionality of, of a professional camera with the smartphone. I thought that might, might be a good happy medium. I don't know. But definitely something. Definitely something I might have to do a podcast about. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Now, the next question I have for you, and, and you and I have talked numerous times aside from this this episode, but you know, I know like myself, you've dedicated a significant amount of your time in continuing your education. And do you have any advice for my listeners on what they should look into as far as schooling if they want to get into photojournalism or now what's more editorial and documentary photography, you know, do they need to go to school? Is it a good idea to go to school and get more of a, um, a mixture of, uh, I guess I want to say exposure to different genres and styles of photography, as well as photo history and stuff like that. Like I did, which I really enjoyed. Um, I mean, I know there's a lot of self-taught photographers. Chase Jarvis, as a matter of fact, is one of the highest paid photographers in the world, and he's completely self-taught. Um, but there's the problem with being self-taught, at least in the digital age, is so many people turn to YouTube for everything. And the problem is you don't always get quality content on YouTube. So... I guess uh, uh, that would be the, the biggest part of this question is any advice you would have as far as what they should look into for schooling. Should they bother with an associate's or bachelor's degree or just get a certificate program or or just do completely self-taught or, or maybe get an apprenticeship with an existing professional photographer? Great question. Great question. Because education photojournalism photography is changing so rapidly it's hard to figure out what is the route to go and what you can afford and what are you going to get the best benefit from and there's great resources out there for people to take advantage of youtube is a great resource and i'd like to you know also in tell your listeners about creative live and Linda.com. There's a lot of great resources out there that you can access for a nominal fee. And I would say, first off, the most important thing is that you need to know your camera. You need to know the technical aspects of your camera. You need to be able to shoot your camera on manual. And a lot of 
people will shy away from that and they'll say, oh, I can shoot it on aperture priority, shutter, shutter speed or whatever that is. And yes, you can, but that's never going to make you great. That's never going to make you awesome. And so really understanding and being familiar with the technical aspects of photography is, is number one. And I'm not a numbers person. I'm not a math person. And I resisted technical side of photography for many, many years. But the thing about understanding your camera and photography on the technical side is that it's going to allow you so much more creativity. And so... Number one, I think it's really important for you to accept that there's a very technical side of photography that you should learn. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to do that. And, of course, the number one way is go out and shoot. Shoot on manual. Shoot with your one lens. You know, you were talking about that, you know, earlier, just, Take your camera with you and make pictures. Experience is the best form of education. Absolutely. I yeah. think, Go ahead. Sorry. The, the, other, the other kind of part of that question is, what do you want to do? You know, what is the ultimate goal of you using your photography? Do you want to be... Um, working for a newspaper, do you want to tell stories about people that are not being told? You know, that's the most common kind of almost cliche for photojournalists. I want to tell the stories about people whose voices aren't heard. And if that's the case, then I recommend really thinking about looking into education based around what that issue is. Are you interested in politics? Are you interested in social? Are you interested in human rights? Then ideas based around those, that form of education would be something for you to consider. Anthropology. I did a minor in anthropology and I use my photography as a collaborative aspect of that, you know, and that then spurred my interest in Africa and other cultures. So it's really important for you to parallel what your interests are as a photographer. For example, Liam, you're, you know, you have an economic interest, you have a historical interest, then, you know, think about what you can do to learn more about history, economy, those kinds of things, because the way photojournalism or documentary work is going is that you have to have that niche. You have to have that structure, that bone bare idea of, okay, I'm interested in this history and this is how I'm going to do it visually. So those are some things to be thinking about. Do you need a degree? That's very debatable. When you look at uh, job applications that say you need a bachelor's in this, and, and, and then, yeah, you know, it, it is a good opportunity. But a lot of the job listings and things that you have out there are based on communication, management, um, public relations. 
So it's really important that you can do a lot of different things at once. So is a straight-up photography degree necessary? I would say that it's debatable. I would say that learning different styles of photography, editorial, commercial, photojournalism, portraiture, uh, all those are very important. So you really understand what is it that you want to do and what are you passionate about. And often when I, 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 I've instructed, you know, students say, well, I only want to do this. And then they take, you know, they only want to do weddings. And then they take my photojournalism class and they realize, well, this is awesome. I love this. I want to learn more about that. And guess what? Photojournalism is wedding photography. So I think it's really important for everyone to kind of say, what is the ultimate idea or what is the ultimate goal that you want to achieve and then break it down from there? Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely great advice. Um, and like I said, for me, I, you know, I did photography off and on for many, many years before I actually went to school to get my degree, uh, my associate's first and then my bachelor's. But it was me. I've just always been a nerd. So I've always been into education. So I was like, why not? You know, I've already got my computer science degrees. Why not get my photography degree? And, um, because I enjoy school and I enjoy learning from, from people like yourself and Ruben and so many of the other professors, wonderful professors that I had at AI that had many years of experience, real world experience in different genres and styles of photography. You did photojournalism and you covered sports photography and, um, you know, Ruben did portrait and you guys both did portfolio classes and, and uh, Giselle Sinezi did fashion and she also did time-based media on the video side um so i really enjoyed my time not only in getting my degree uh for the educational or nerd aspect of it but i loved getting that quality time with all of my professors you know people like yourselves and getting your wisdom from working in the different fields of photography like you and with photojournalism so to me, that was really important, but, and it's not necessarily for everybody. And, and there's no two ways about it in this day and age, especially to get any kind of photography degree, you mostly have to go to either a big university or uh, a specialized art school. And those aren't cheap. You know, the tuition's fairly expensive. Um, and, and I can understand. I mean, people complain all the time about college education being expensive in America and it is, but you also can't have cheap college because then you're not going to get quality instructors and professors. You know, you can't, uh, you can't have, uh, you know, college tuition. It's $10,000 a year for four years to get a bachelor's degree. And, you know, the, the university is not going to be able to pay a slew of professors off that measly tuition. Uh, no matter how many students they got, they just can't cover everything. I mean, there's a lot of expense involved that a lot of people I don't think take into account when they talk about how expensive education is. And yeah, there's a lot of great resources that are more cost effective or maybe a little more affordable, like you mentioned, like Creative Live, which happens to be Chase Jarvis's other company. <laughs> um, and uh, the uh, the uh, Lydia videos as well. I think it's Lydia. 
Um, but what a lot of people might not know is they need to check at their local um, library, like a county library or a city library, because a lot of times those libraries will have those subscriptions and you can go to the library and you can actually watch the videos as a patron of the library without having to pay, you know, the cost up front of your own pocket for everything because the library's already got those subscriptions. Yeah, I would, I, I, so many points that you mentioned there, Liam, you know, look around, see what you want to do, explore, and, and really be clear about it before you invest. I think that's really important. You know, look at different colleges, different universities. What do they specialize in? I went to Syracuse University, and they were well-known for their photography department and their photography program. And there really is nothing like having um, a class with someone who has professional world experiences. You know, there's one thing to look at a YouTube video and have people tell you what to do. But when you have a professor that's actually invested in you and cares about you and wants to see you grow and you're the type of student who will accept that um, critique, that uh, it really does make a difference. And I, and, you know, not to pump our own horns here, but you were definitely one of the students that I really enjoyed working with because you were curious, you were passionate, you took my challenges. And if you're that kind of person that wants someone to push you, no matter how uncomfortable that may be, that's the place where you're going to learn it, you know, and, and perhaps you may not have the financial means for that and that's understandable. Find someone who's a mentor. Find someone that will work with you and take you under their wing and push you and, you know, show people your work and, and build those relationships because that is what it's about. And, you know, you can get lost in a big class with 200 people or you can, you know, find a college that is smaller and you're going to get that um, individual attention. And it's really, you know, as a student of photography, it's really up to you, you know, how much you reach out, how much you want to know, how much you need help or want help. And I would encourage whatever system your listeners are, are interested in, in pursuing or whatever they can afford or whatever is accessible to them. It's really about making connection with someone who you can bond with that is accepting and will look at your work and say, hey, you know, you need to do this. And if they say, hey, you need to do this, you need to do it. You know, and that's one of the things I always admired about you, Liam, is I would do that, challenge you, and you exceeded my my expectations. And, and that's the whole thing is working with people that are going to give you those perspectives. And school is great for that because, as you mentioned, when you go to school, you're going to be challenged with the things that you don't want to do. And if you care 
you're going to push yourself to create the best work that you can. And you never know where that's going to lead you. Yeah, absolutely. And for the most part in my time at AI, I didn't shy away from too many of the classes. Uh, to be honest, there was only one really that I just absolutely would not take. <laughs> and that was fashion figure and fashion photography. Um, and it wasn't that I wasn't interested in challenging myself in a, a genre or a style that I hadn't done before. But I had a bad experience with the professor that taught the class, and he was the only one that taught the class. So I was like, okay, this is not a mandatory class, so let's just push this one off and give me something else. <laughs> and so that was the route I went with that. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed all my classes I had with you. Um, I have never been a big sports person. I did track and cross country in high school. They kept trying to get me to do football, and I didn't have any interest in football. Um, I've been a nerd most all of my, pretty much all my life from the 10 years old on, I was writing code and stuff like that. And so I've never really been into sports as a participant. I'm not really big into watching any sports, but shooting sports is different. I can get into that. Um, I went to Atlanta Motor Speedway a couple of years ago and, and shot the, uh, Folds of Honor Quick Trip 500, uh, NASCAR race and, I was actually glad I made it that particular year because it was only, I think, a year later that my driver, Dale Earnhardt Jr., retired from the sport and became a, um, a commentator uh, for, for his sport. Um, and I know why he retired. He had gotten married and he had his first kid on the way. And his wife was pretty rattled after he had two consecutive concussions in a previous season and it almost killed him. So I think that's why he got out of the sport as young as he did. Plus, you know, if you know anything about NASCAR, his father died racing um, at Daytona a number of years back. So, uh, but I, I, I can enjoy shooting sports like soccer or basketball or NASCAR or baseball, but I've just never been a sports person myself. I can't sit and watch sports like other guys do but I can enjoy photographing it. The, to me, that's more exciting. Yeah, there is something about being right on the field that makes it much more interesting. And there are certain sports that you really have to know to be able to photograph well. For example, I feel baseball is one of those sports. But the, the idea with a challenge like sports is you know, it's about action. It's about movement. So say you're, for example, a wedding photographer uh, and someone asks you, you know, can you, can you shoot my wedding? You know, you can practice actually on sports because it's so fast paced. And it's about a technical skill of being able to stop that action. You know, I think that's one of the things that is great about education is that those challenges of something you may not find yourself interested in. For example, sports, a lot of people are not interested in sports, but the, the baseline of that, of stopping action, blurring action on purpose, um, you know, predicting action are things that you will use in 
other genres of photography. And that's really important. And I think that, you know, what education helps to, to do is that you're faced with these challenges that you would never do by choice and probably never by, by homework, you know, but when you do them, the next time you're faced with a world, real world challenge, you know how to handle it. And I think those are some of the things that you cannot get from YouTube or Creative Live unless you're really, really, really self-driven. You know, uh, having said that, you know, whatever education you are interested in, you have to be self-motivated. You have to be curious and you have to be passionate. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now that actually gets me to my next question I had for you, which was in addition to your career in photojournalism, um, you've also worked for many years as a professor teaching photography to others. Can you share a little bit more about your experiences as an instructor besides just working with me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love teaching. I really do. I, I find it very rewarding and Working with someone who's just starting off, just curious, a little bit unsure of themselves, and uh, as a professor, instructor, you know, finding those strengths in students and helping them to nurture them and give them direction to where they can succeed is very exciting, especially those that are very curious and, again, passionate. And often I say, you know, I can't teach curiosity and I can't teach passion, but I can give you the tools to work towards success. And, you know, it's up to you when you sign up to be a student in whatever form that is, it really is up to you. And if you have someone that can give you some guidance, the path, to persist, it's it's really exciting. I started off teaching in Zimbabwe, um, just teaching kids photography, kids with cameras, just giving them cameras, talking to them about art and photography, and I was incredibly inspired by their innate composition and drive and passion, and. I really didn't talk to them about composition, rule of thirds, framing, you know, those kinds of things. And it was amazing for me to see kids, young kids, you know, from the ages of 6 to 13, have this wonderful sense of composition and ability to tell stories. And that really inspired me to go on beyond that. Uh, I was a photojournalist before that, started working in Zimbabwe, teaching uh, photography and art and communication, and was just so impressed by the passion that these kids had. In Zimbabwe, there's not a lot of art being taught, and I would do small workshops where I would, um, with a team, uh, work with kids and one of the 
assignments or activities we would have would be to look at National Geographic. And they would crowd into me almost on top of me when I was showing a single National Geographic. And it was so amazing to see how curious they were about looking at other cultures and seeing the images. And it was just so, it, it was absolutely incredible to, to see their uh, need and want to be more educated about other people. And that's what inspired me to go on to learn more about teaching and education. And from there, I went to the Art Institute of Colorado and had the opportunity to teach on ground and then online. And it really is uh, wonderful to have the opportunity to see a student's work. And, and again, it, it goes back to that detective idea of looking at their work, seeing what they're saying, and knowing what they need to do to be successful. And you had uh, another one of our alumni on, John Harville, and he was another one of my favorite students who I could see his passion, curiosity, and his willingness to take on challenges. And I think no matter what your passion is, if it's photography or something else, that's what you need to be successful. And seeking out those mentors is what's important. I I love to teach and um, having students that are open to it is the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. And John, I mean, he just, he was lucky enough to just, uh, the same week I interviewed him, he got to go and shoot uh, LA Fashion Week. So and he loves to do the fashion side of things. And, you know, he got to be there with professional models. You know, these are models that work with big brands like, you know, Vogue and CoverGirl and God only knows what else. And and the thing that was interesting is the, the shoot that he was actually, the, the weekend that he went to was a combination of fashion and automobiles. Now, I haven't seen anything he posted besides the fashion models, but I know he was telling me that it was uh, being held at a big auto automotive museum out there in LA. And they were going to have all kinds of unique vehicles from different movies and TV shows. George Barris's original 1960s Batmobile was going to be there and all that stuff. So I'm still waiting to see those images, but uh, for him, that was very exciting because he's into the fashion side of photography and, and he's also into vehicles. He's into cars like I am. So he was getting to combine two of his passions into a single event. So I, I know he was really excited and really looking forward to that. Yeah, that's a great, so many good points again, is that he's combining his passions, which I think is really important to be successful. You know, most of us have more than one passion. Maybe it's travel, maybe it's art, maybe it's photography, but learning and seeing the ways that you can combine those history, whatever it may be with your photography is really important. And I just want to give a big shout out to John because he took my photojournalism class and um, you know, learning to light is one of the challenges in that class 
and and being okay with it and accepting it. A lot of uh, photographers, including myself at times, have said, you know, I'm a natural light photographer. I can do everything by natural light. And that's probably true, but you need the skills of lighting and artificial light to improve yourself and to improve your work. And he never looked back with those challenges. As soon as he was presented that with a class assignment, he just took it and rode. And and from that point on, you know, advanced himself um, in a in a very constructive way, in my opinion. You know, he had his passions, and he found people in his community that he felt comfortable with, that he could try things and and make mistakes. And, and grow from there. Uh, you know, he didn't just take on that assignment and, and all of a sudden go to Fashion Week. And that's what I would encourage your listeners to is, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. You should make mistakes. But find those areas that you feel comfortable with that it's the safe you know, place for you to try things. And if you need to go back and shoot again, do it, you know. But take on that challenge knowing that you're only going to improve. None of us go into this becoming perfect, you know. And I still make a million mistakes, you know. And I still wish that I was better than the way that I am right now. And that's always going to be the case with any photographer and the idea of you being a creative and accepting that and moving forward again it kind of goes into that education side is we're not born perfect we're not born perfect photographers that's for dang sure right and we need you know opportunities to make mistakes absolutely and john has really really embraced using artificial lighting i mean he uses it exclusively now he doesn't even waste his time with natural light every every shoot he does he takes his lighting kit with him and that's what he does whether he's out in the desert or at uh the shot he did with megan at the at the roller skating rink and bowling alley combo facility he was at i mean he uses his lighting all the time and he's gotten really really good with it yeah, and I just want to point out that's probably within a year to two years that he's done that. Yeah, that's, that's what he was telling me. Yeah, which is impressive. Again, it, it is, and it's your curiosity, your passion. So, you know, again, to your listeners, what do you care about? What are you passionate about? And, you know, don't let anything else stop you if you have that passion. Yep, absolutely. And one of the things, uh, I'm not sure, I think he was telling me that he he uses a software too that he spent a lot of time studying at home when he wasn't doing shoots. And I know there's a couple of programs out there. I can't think of the names of any of them off the top of my head, but I was going to look into one of them because I know there's a couple of companies that have actually made um, photography-specific programs that'll actually help you with setting up your lighting properly depending on what you're shooting 
and how many subjects are involved, whether it's one model or, or multiple models and how many lights you're using. And you can put all these parameters into the software and it'll visually show you on your screen how to set things up and how the light's going to fall and, you know, which light is going to be, you know, where you want to put your, your key light, your hair light, your fill light, and then your primary lights. And I think, I'm not sure, but I think he told me he does have one of those programs and that was where he really started learning about it. And then he just went gangbusters, just trying everything out in the field on different photo shoots that he was doing for school assignments and stuff that he just did for himself. And he's gotten really great with lighting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the important aspect to that is whatever you use, just don't be afraid to try. Don't be a try. Don't be afraid to fail. Absolutely. Now, I had uh, two more questions for you, but I'm going to kind of roll these two into one. Um, and that was basically in addition to your years of photojournalistic work. And as an instructor, you've also done quite a bit of your own personal photographic work as an artist and as an instructor, like you mentioned a little bit ago. And you've done a lot of these personal projects in places like Nambia, Zimbabwe, and Rwanda. Can you tell my audience a little bit more about that? I know you mentioned um, working with some of the children and teaching them photography and doing little workshops with them. But can you do you want to go into some more details on some of that stuff that you've done? Because it sounds really exciting. Sure. I, I started off um, in Zimbabwe. And I had been working for a newspaper here in Colorado, Fort Collins, Colorado. And I'd always had a passion about Africa and wanted to, you know, learn more, discover more, see more. And I'm sure, again, like your many of your members of your audience, you know, that National Geographic idea. And I found an organization that, uh, use media for um, documentation and they were working in Africa and I chose to uh, give up my career as a photojournalist and go abroad with a project in Zimbabwe and I worked for a media company that produced and distributed African films. Media and film and video wasn't really in my repertoire, and that is one thing I do want to recommend to any photographers out there that are your listeners is it's really important to be versatile at this stage in our, our history is to be able to shoot not only stills but video as well. It's very, very important. And embrace it and, and don't be shy about it you may be a little bit better than you know in one than you are in another but it's okay at least have knowledge about it and when I went to Zimbabwe I started the project with kids teaching photography and uh, art and communication and at the same time I was working for uh, medium organization where I did community outreach and also worked with a film company that produced a major feature film. And I was just excited to have my name on the, on the credit line. What I ended up doing was uh, making of 
behind the scenes. And during that time, I worked with one of the uh, film crew, which was, uh, he was a gaffer and ended up helping me quite a bit on my video and eventually turned out to be my husband, Rick, who is a Zimbabwean. So that really opened up a lot of opportunities for me to travel in Africa and also understand the African culture. So most of my travel, uh, for the most part, has been in Africa, Namibia, Zimbabwe, and Rwanda, doing outreach, doing educational outreach, teaching, as well as documenting uh, social in those countries and uh, as I become more personal with the lifestyle of what's happening in Zimbabwe Patrick my husband's family still lives in uh, Zimbabwe so we travel to the same areas the same communities his uh, family were farmers so they uh, his mother is still alive and in that area and then uh, people that have been a part of her life are also there. And it's been a real treasure to have the opportunity to know them on a personal level. I think as travelers, when we go abroad, uh, we see a very surface opportunity unless we're there for an extended period of time. I've had, I've been very privileged to revisit the same area over and over again and get to know families, you know, and their kids, what they do, their struggles. And that has allowed me to really document what's been happening, particularly in Zimbabwe. Patrick, my husband, also is a videographer, so I've been lucky enough to have that opportunity to learn videography through him, lighting, he's amazing, and um, travel with him on some of the uh, work that he's done in Namibia. Currently, he's working with a company that teaches physics, and had some opportunities to travel to Namibia, where we've worked with uh, indigenous populations, uh, teaching and training them uh, in physics. And that's really allowed me to be on the ground level uh, to document them, their home life, and, and get to know them, which has allowed me to really document them in a personal way. Um, I, th I think what happens often as photographers, we get very, very excited about traveling and different cultures, and perhaps we tend to photograph the obvious. When you're able to spend time with those cultures, you get an opportunity to understand their struggles, how they like to be photographed, for example. And that's something that really intrigued me. The way Africans, in, in my experience, and I want to be really clear with that, in my experience, the way Africans like to be photographed is very different from my expectations originally and what we think people 
or how we think people want to be photographed. And that is where a big base of my photography has come from. Oh, wow. That's really cool. And and I'm assuming you're not talking about personal superstitions they have about photography, but just the the way they want to be portrayed in photographs, correct? Exactly. So, you know, I haven't run across in Africa, in, in my, again, please, you know, my experience, I haven't run across those kinds of ideas of, of superstitions, soul stealing, that kind of thing. I, you know, of course, there's people that don't want to be photographed. And there's people that want to be paid to allow you to take their photograph. But there's a very interesting thing that I have run across with people in Zimbabwe in particular about how they want to be photographed. And it's a very stoic, very non-emotional uh, way of being photographed. And I'll, I'll be able to provide you with some of the photos and the way that they want to be photographed with their wealth. Perhaps it's a specific purse that they've been, you know, saved up a lot of money for, for example, or an outfit, or perhaps they have a car that they want to be photographed next to. And it wouldn't be necessarily the way I would want to photograph them, but they want to be photographed. But by these things or with these things and that then allows them to show that to their family to their friends and it portrays a certain idea of respect and wealth that is very interesting to me because that's not what I would see and what I would want to photograph if it were completely up to me. And one of the projects that I've done recently were uh, are some images that I took in Namibia, which I'll share with you and your, your listeners, which is where I took a little bit more control and um, designed the background and how they would be photographed. I felt it in the past, in Zimbabwe, it's very important to photograph the people the way they wanted to be photographed because that's what they want. They're allowing me into their life. And more likely than not, they maybe never been photographed. Or if they had been photographed, it was, you know, inferior quality, a quick snapshot. And I felt that my way of giving back to this community or this individual was to let them, allow them to be photographed the way that they felt best represented them, which, again, more often than not, was not in my wheelhouse. I would have gone 180 to what they wanted. I found a way in in recent times to kind of try to combine uh, those opportunities with my my expertise right so finding relatively clean backgrounds and and you know 
you know, obviously I can use my camera to control depth of field and angle and perspective. And I can also, you know, squeeze off the, you know, my artistic perspective while still giving them the images that they want. So it's, it, it, it's an interesting balance that you play between, you know, really giving them what they need and want and honoring that to what you want. And that idea of truth and, and balance and perspective is an interesting and artistic line to, to walk. And that's what I find one of the most interesting aspects of, of my travel and portraiture. And I know probably a lot of folks out there are, are interested in, in the, in the, uh, wildlife aspect of of Africa, which is absolutely incredible, uh, and I have had that opportunity. But for me, as a photojournalist, it's always about the people. Yeah, absolutely, and you, you can get more of an interesting story with that aspect of it. I mean. You know, yeah, sure. There's, you know, all of the fantastic wildlife of the Serengeti and stuff like that. But for me, I would be more interested in the the people, the the culture, and the stories of the people themselves. Because um, the, to be honest, I mean, the the wildlife aspect of it's been done to death. <laughs> um, with as long as National Geographic's been around, that's that's totally been done to death. And although they did also cover cultures and tribes and stuff like that. They didn't get nearly as much coverage over the decades, I don't think, as the wildlife aspect down there did. Yeah, I, you know, it, it is fascinating. I, I love it, and I've had some amazing opportunities with wildlife, but for me, it's always about people's stories. You know, what, how many kids do they have? Where do they live? What do they eat? How do they dress on a regular basis? How do they make ends meet? What do they believe? You know, do they believe in a combination in Africa in particular? Do they believe in a kind of Christian, uh, Catholic uh, idea with a combination of, um, you know, myth and and ancestor worship you know to me that is all fascinating and as a photographer i think the challenge is how do you represent that and and that kind of goes back to our idea of media and the thoughts that we talked about with media is really how do you uncover that how do you portray meaningful truthful way to not only yourself, but more importantly, they say something, but how can you visualize that? How can you document that? How can you represent that without it going off the charts and meaning something else? And that's what I find so fascinating about working abroad and working with different cultures, because we have so many stereotypes about what people think, what people do, what is tribe, what is culture. Um, and it really is up to you to, to figure out 
you know, what is authentic? And that's what I hope many of your listeners take away from, whether it's domestic or abroad, in particular in your own backyard. What is authentic? You know, do you put your own spin on it or do you really try to listen and document what is really happening and and how do you do that? And that's the challenge. And that's what I find so exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Now I did have, that's all I had for my questions, but I did have a, a few of my listeners submit a couple of questions here. And, um, and I think it's mostly because I was harping that nobody's been posting questions for any of the interviews I've done so far. So John Harvell, he posted um, and asked, when it comes to photojournalism, how far is too far when it comes to editing? Ooh, very good question. Very good question. I think when it alters truth in any way, quite honestly, you know, um, that is a fine line. So if you take a beautiful portrait in terms of photojournalism and you take this beautiful portrait, but there's a light pole in the back or a Coke can in the front, it's going to make a better picture if you, if you Photoshop those out, but then you start to alter reality. And the point about photojournalism is that you're documenting truth. And this is, again, going back to some of the issues we talked to at the beginning of the interview, is if you start making those choices about reality, then what is true? Right? What is fake news? What what, removing a Coke can seems like a harmless, harmless thing. And it's making a better picture, for sure. But you've changed something. If you've changed one thing, then doesn't that open the door to change more? Yeah, absolutely. So in my opinion, uh, my opinion, I think your changes as a photojournalist, your post-production as a photojournalist, have to be very limited. Can you change the color balance? Yeah, that's not really changing too much. Can you maybe dodge and burn a little bit on a face to bring up the eyes or to, uh, you know, bring more clarity? Can you sharpen a little bit because your shutter speed was too slow and you need a little bit more sharpened and it's not going to really change what happened? I think that's okay. But going much further than that, is really is really dangerous. Yeah, because and then you're altering reality. Yeah. And even cropping images to make them better, you know, to get clutter out. You have to be careful. And I think the point with all of that is who is your audience? Is this for your portfolio? Is this for a magazine? Is this for a newspaper? What is this for? If you're pro if you're photographing uh, a protest for a newspaper, for example, and you crop in and you only have an option for one image and you crop into the one person holding the sign and uh, their sign says something maybe that you agree with, but the 
200 other people have signs that say something different. And that's really creating something that's not a reality. And that's when you have to be careful. Correct. And I know, um, I remember reading, uh, I think it was on Petapixel. I think it might have been about a year ago. Maybe it's been a little bit longer than that. It was either, I can't remember if it was Reuters or the Associated Press no longer allows their photographer, photojournalists to shoot in RAW. They have to shoot in JPEG so that there's no editing done. The images have to be shot JPEG only and sent immediately. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of problems. And, um, you know, I encourage everyone to look at that Facebook post of, you know, most recently things like hunters with a giant, you know, animal that looks like they just shot him, you know, look at the shadows, look at uh, the placement of different elements in an image and really make yourself uh, aware of what's happening in an image because it is very, very easy to alter things and um, trust that to be, to be true. And, you know, I remember photos of uh, Ben Laden being uh, produced and distributed of, of him being killed. And, you know, none of those were true. Uh, so, so be cautious. Don't assume that it's true. Remember that media at this point is more interested in getting it there first than the reality. That is the way people are looking at things, editors and newspapers, and it's important. And they've had to retract. They've had to retract on a lot of things. So take a step, take a breath, realize and look at and use your intuition to look at an image or a story, and there's a lot of good ones right now, to see, is that plausible? Yeah, absolutely. And and I know that was a, a big thing because with the with Photoshop being so prevalent these days, there's I mean, there's people out there that can do magic with Photoshop, but it, you know, it, that's the problem is you know Photoshop leads to much more counterfeiting of images, faking images, and doctoring images and stuff like that. And, you know, I knew when those images of Bin Laden after he was, after SEAL Team 6 killed him that were circular, I knew those were all fake because I spent 10 years in the Army and I know we, we wouldn't release photographs like that. And primarily, we wouldn't have done it because it was, it's disrespectful to the culture in that part of the world. So I knew that all of those images were fake. I knew they were completely garbage. That's a great point. And I think as a photographer, you have to really take a step back and say to yourself, you know, am I changing this image to match my opinion? Am I trying to change this image to present what I think or what the reality is? And obviously, you know, I don't think enough photographers do that. We have to take a step 
and and this goes to John's question, as a photographer, are you changing something to change the reality to match your opinion? And as a photojournalist, that's not okay. Yeah, and unfortunately in this day and age, too many media outlets don't care. <laughs> they, they no longer even care about reality. It's all, everything's biased and slanted one way or another. So that's why I pretty much don't have anything to do with any kind of news media uh, in any form or fashion other than the work I do with the with the art of newspaper. Uh, it's just sad. It's sad. Um, so I did have one, qu- or one item from my girlfriend Janice, um, which was more of a comment. Um, she said that She's watched as you taught me through the classes I had with you over the last four years. Um, and she wanted to thank you for believing in, in me as she has. And also thank you for giving me guidance on my project and expanding the social media aspect of that. And for being a fantastic teacher and mentor. And I, and I want to thank you again myself as well for all that you've done to help me out with my photography. Oh. Well, thank you. I, I, it's always wonderful to have students that um, appreciate me or appreciate you as a teacher and takes on the challenges. And, um, you know, I, I have challenged you over the years and, and you took on those challenges and exceeded my expectations. And here I am on a new medium being interviewed for a podcast and I have been bragging about my interview with my former student who's making awesome podcasts and I'm just so excited to be here and uh, you have been uh, a great uh, inspiration to me as well and um, I hope all your listeners uh, keep on listening and asking those questions and I would love to be back to talk about those hard questions we 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 chatted about earlier with media because I think uh, media photography and the opportunity to manipulate is something that everyone needs to be aware of and the important side of photography, in my opinion, is really telling those stories about the people you're photographing in the way that they need and want to be photographed. And your role as a photographer is to give them voice. And um, you've given me voice through this podcast, and I'm very grateful. So thank you, Liam. Yep. I want to thank you very much for for taking the time to talk to me today um, and do this interview with me. Uh, We've run about an hour and 30 minutes, which is good. I I tell all of my guests I like the interviews to at least be an hour um, because I just think the longer format is much better, especially for an interview. You can't do a meaningful interview in 15, 20 minutes. And so, uh, but I definitely don't want to tie you up all night and I've still got to work on um, editing the video portion so I can hopefully get both up by by Thursday at the latest. I normally try to release my new episodes on Thursday if possible, um, but prefer to shoot them ahead of time. Not so much for a lot of editing, but just because with me working two full-time jobs, I, you know, 
depends on my schedule can change from week to week. I might be off one week on Thursday and then it's fine to do it on the same day I release it. Uh, but this week I've got to work Wednesday and Thursday both for Turner at night. So it's better for me to record it with you tonight. And then I've got a, you know, a day or two to do the editing of the video part since it's the, the, the first interview episode that I'm doing with accompanying YouTube videos. So, and that way I can get your images that you send to me and any additional ones you send. And of course, I'll also have you um, share with me any any social media links for yourself and, and your portfolio, digital portfolio and stuff like that. So I can put them in the show notes for my listeners as well. But I definitely want to thank you for being kind enough to give me an hour and a half of your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. And um, I hope you do edit <laughs> well with this. And uh, I absolutely love this conversation and hope to have another one with you in the future. Um, I, I had so much fun today. I, I really, you, you asked some great questions and it was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll definitely, definitely be having you back for additional episodes as long as you're okay with that. Uh, cause I know there's a lot of other topics you and I can talk about. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and let you go then so I can wrap up this episode. You have a wonderful evening and we will talk to you again soon. Thanks, Liam. And thanks, Janice, too. All right. Thanks, Jill. All right. Bye. Bye bye. Well, there you have it, folks. That is the wrap up of my interview with Jill Mott, professional photojournalist and photography professor and instructor. And it's been a long one, uh, but as I told her, I enjoyed the fact that it was a longer, even longer. This so far has been my longest interview, and I and I knew it was going to be a long one because there were a lot of great things to talk to her about. And she and I have a great rapport and relationship. So hopefully you've enjoyed it. Uh, as I said, this is going to have an accompanying video on my YouTube channel. Um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, as well as any of Jill's social media links and her portfolio that she wants to share. With that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. I want to thank my listeners again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in iTunes and any other platforms you might be using to listen to this podcast. You've been listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. This was episode 14, and I will see you next time in episode 15. <laughs>